Well, good morning, everyone. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I will jump into our teaching on the book of Joel. So please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us today to worship together. Lord, as we were reminded by Pastor Steve, the encouragement of the saints is one of the reasons we gather together. And so I pray that we would feel that encouragement today. I also pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word. I pray the lessons we learned this morning in the main service would resonate in our hearts. And I pray that the things that I teach from Joel would be used by you to encourage us as well. And to caution us and to warn us and to convict us. And I pray, Lord, for my teaching that it would be accurate, that I would not misrepresent what you say. And I just ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts so that we would be doers of your word, not merely hearers. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am going to finally finish. I never know until I do my lesson. I am going to finish uh, through verse 12 today, which means, like I had mentioned last week, next week we're going to have one of our, what I hope to be a regular day of prayer. So just be aware that next week... We're still going to start with our prayer groups, but then I'm going to transition. This time is going to be a corporate prayer. So just be ready for that. As, as with the time we did a few weeks ago, you don't have to feel that you have to pray out loud. You can pray in your heart, but there will also be opportunities for you to pray publicly if you're comfortable with that. I don't want prayer to be something that people hide from, so I'm never going to pressure you. Not everybody's comfortable praying in public. People have legitimate reasons for not wanting to pray in public. That's okay, too. So, But just be reminded that next Sunday is going to be a day of prayer. The following Sunday after that, John Schroeder is going to be teaching. You can pray for Rig and I. We're part of a group of guys that are going on sort of an exploratory camping trip for a possible men's group activities. Here's the challenge. Rig and I are a lot older than everybody else we're going with. And this is going to be rustic camping. We're going to be kayaking down a river somewhere that's going to take a couple of days for us to do. We're camping outside, no facilities, no anything. So despite me being from Perry, that is way outside my comfort zone. So appreciate your prayers, but you won't see me on that Sunday. But if you think about me, pray for Rig and I, because it would be nice for us to be able to come home from that trip. So anyway, with... Where we are, we began two weeks ago to study the book of Joel. And if you haven't already turned there, and either your Bible or your device that has your Bible, go ahead and do that. And really, everything we've been doing has been foundational. The outline was not particularly clever or anything like that, but it, it's accurate in that these first 12 verses are setting the stage for the lessons of Joel. Everything about it, everything that comes in the book is premised on what was transpiring here. And I'm going to do a brief review of the first two messages and then get into the meat of finishing up this section. And it will have set the stage and prepare us for the next aspect of this study. The first point that I made was the setting the stage for the lessons of Joel. One was the true messenger of Joel. And it was very simply from the first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. The point is, this is God doing it. This isn't just a man 
who was an Israelite who made up something. This was God giving his word. So everything here, like all of scripture, is God's word to us. Second and setting stage was the target audience of the message. Verses 2 and 3. Now I won't read them, but verses 2 and 3 make it clear. He was speaking to the leaders, referred to as the elders. He also was speaking to all the people living in the land. But it wasn't limited to that because he said, this is so profound, this is so unprecedented, that you're going to tell it to your children and your children's children. This is a generational message. So it was certainly for the individuals who first heard the word, those who were part of what was called the southern kingdom, the two southern tribes, often referred to as Judah. But this was something that was profound. Nothing like this had ever happened. It was to be a message to the people living then, experiencing it, but also for the subsequent generations. And third, in this setting the stage, was the calamity and its consequences that inspired the message. And this is what we've been covering in more detail the last couple of weeks. Verse 4, and again, I'm not going to read all of these for time because I'm going to need some time at the back end, but verse 4 made it clear that wave after wave of locusts had devastated the land. They had eaten everything. If it grew out of the ground, if it was plant life, the locusts in a picture of wave after wave had come through and what the first wave didn't get, the second got what the second didn't get, the third got. What the third didn't get, the fourth got. And it was complete and utter devastation. Wiped out their entire economic system. It was an agricultural economy. If all of your produce is gone, you're in trouble. Then Joel began to use his poetic words inspired by God to describe the impacts. And really, it's three different areas of society we've covered the first two today we'll cover the third but the first in essence if i were summarizing it had to do with sort of the leisure life the leisure activities verse five awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth and then verse six describes those locusts as an invading army and pictures them as so ferocious because of what they were doing and the point here, as I tried to articulate last week, wasn't to condemn drinking per se, although drunkenness is always a sin, and so some of them needed to be woken up from their drunken stupor, and it clearly is a reference to the fact that they were sinning. But the bigger picture is that wine was gone, and that was representative of a leisure economy. In other words, they had time to enjoy themselves. And because of what the locusts did, there would be no more new wine, meaning the pipeline shut off, and for a drunkard, their addiction was going to hit them hard because they weren't going to be able to get a fix. And for everybody else that was just enjoying, enjoying a life of ease, the party's over. It's done. And then he pictures not only the wine, but he also mentions the fig. Verse 7, it has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. And as I pointed out to you last week from verse in 1 Kings and from Micah 4, it was often pictured that prosperity, God's blessing, was equated with the idea of everybody had their own vine, everybody had their own fig tree. And so by Joel using this familiar language, he's in essence making it clear God's blessing is gone. 
Part of why he's crying out to people and he's trying to get their attention and saying, Awake and wail is because at least for some, they haven't fully grasped the magnitude of what has transpired. And he wants them to understand God has removed his favor. Wake up and understand it. But as I indicated last week, and in covering this, there was a greater calamity than just the economics and just the leisure economy being gone. The ability to worship God in the manner that He required had been eliminated. Verse 8, picturing a mourning, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. But it was just a picture of what the country should be doing the emotions, the sadness, verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the field. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. As I read from Numbers chapter 28, there was a very specific order every single day of sacrifices that had to be offered. And it needed grain, flour. It needed wine for a drink offering. It needed oil that mixed together with the flour to make the correct offering. And because of the locust, it was all gone. The priests only had one job. That's all they did. And they couldn't do it. So the picture is of utter devastation. There's no grain, there's no wine, there's no oil. That means there's no worship. So not only had God withdrawn His blessing, He had withdrawn the ability for them to make intercession with Him through the daily sacrifices. We don't fully understand, me included, the privilege we have of coming to God directly. We read about it and we read in the in the Bible, that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. But the ability to go directly to God that we have was unheard of at the time of the writing of Joel. They couldn't even comprehend it. So their only avenue, their only access to God was gone. They were cut off. But as many people have noted that I've studied... He's painting a building picture of desperation. So we've seen that basically the party time, the leisure, the relaxation is gone. It's over. There's no more wine. Even worship is gone because there's nothing to offer a sacrifice. But it gets even closer to home because there's a call for more mourning Because the people might die. The final picture of hopelessness and devastation is seen in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read as a group. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. This is making clear the basic continuance of life is at issue. There's no more food 
which should be a cause of panic for everybody. Now, Joel's imagery begins by pointing out that the farmer should be ashamed and the vine dresser should wail. Again, these are strong feelings of lament, of desperation. And in an agricultural economy, these are the primary ways that people worked, tending the fields. In all likelihood, the farmers here aren't industrial landowners. If you've ever been around a lot of farming, like in the Central Valley of California, thousands of acres are owned by big corporations. Nothing like that. These are the people that are out in the fields working. In my mind, I remembered that those big giant corporations hire actual people to go out in the fields. You see them when you're driving down the freeway. That, that's the farmers they're talking about here, the people that are doing the work. When he says, wail, O vine dressers, this isn't just somebody harvesting grapes. In all likelihood, because of the reference to pomegranates and date palms and fig trees and apple trees, it's probably everybody that was involved in the harvesting and the maintenance of the orchards to get food to eat. Be ashamed speaks of humiliation. Wail is that cry of anguish. It's another picture of hopelessness. At each point, he's saying to people, you should be devastated because of what's occurred. And I, in my own mind, I'm picturing these, these people waking up, and this probably isn't literally it, but it helps me to imagine... And they walk out to do what they always do to make a living, to earn a daily wage. If you remember, Jesus had told a parable, but he was talking about people would work and they got their wage that day. They, they needed it to live. And you could imagine them walking out and the fields are gone. I show up for work, there's nothing there. I show up and the trees are destroyed. It's the angst and emotion that should overtake them. And it's very clear for the farmers, picking the words together, be ashamed, O farmers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. And I've said it before, everything was destroyed, but wheat and barley were the daily staples. That's how you made bread. That's how you survived. It's interesting because reading the commentators, they say, The barley was the poor man's grain. You you lose the wheat, that's a big deal, but barley was what the poor people eat. The idea is that everybody's food's gone. You remember at the beginning of the pandemic when they would run out of stuff in the grocery store? Never seen a Publix out of chicken or things like that, and everybody's standing around waiting. But it was going to come, it's just a matter of waiting. It's never coming here. They're done. And the devastation, you can imagine, is twofold. Number one, I don't get to go to work. I'm not going to get a wage. But if I had a wage, i got nothing to spend it on. There's no food at all. And that's the picture for the vine dressers, for them to wail. The vine dries up, that's grapes, probably in this context for eating. The fig tree fails, forget that. Pomegranates, the date palm The apple tree, many scholars say, is probably apricots, not a literal apple like what we're used to. 
But if there was any kind of food that came from trees, it's covered by the last statement. All the trees of the field dry up. As we see some language later, it could be. There's hinting that perhaps before the locusts came, they were in the midst of a drought. Either way, this completed language of drying up with the picture of the locusts swarming through is utter devastation. It says, indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. In an agricultural economy, a harvest was a time of celebration. For God's people, they would bring the first fruits, they would worship that way, but also they finally had something, and now nobody has anything. There's not a smile anywhere amongst the people. If ever a people had a reason to be depressed, this was it. They're staring into an abyss. Despair and devastation of an unprecedented scope. It's almost like layers of, wait, wait, we don't have any more leisure anymore. Wait, we can't even worship anymore. Wait, we can't eat anymore. But what will be clear, and I pray that I can articulate this and it can be communicated in a way to understand, is this is not just evidence of a freak natural disaster that was a setback. Because all of these calamities were directed by the sovereign hand of God. I showed something last week and I alluded to it earlier. It's in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, talking about Solomon and the reign of Solomon. When he had done everything, it was the most prosperous time in the history of the nation. The end of verse 24, and he had peace on all sides around about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safely in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. In other words, it was a picture of contentment and peace and prosperity. And I already alluded to the fact that when the writer Joel, through God's divine inspiration, was mentioning the fig and the vine being gone, it carried the image that God's blessing has been removed. But the picture we just saw in verses 11 and 12, again, combined with what preceded is doing something similar, but on a greater scale. And I don't want to overstate things, and I don't think I'm using hyperbole, and I'm trying not to overstate it, but what is being described here in the first chapter of Joel is really a window into and an explanation of the entire Old Testament history of the people of God. If you take from the time of Exodus till the end of the Old Testament, believe it or not, a great deal of it could be understood by just what we've covered. So bear with me when I explain to you why, but it is critical... And I think it will help you understand the Old Testament, but it will also help us set the stage 
for what's happening here. So the call of God's people obviously began with Abraham. I'm simplifying some references here. But God called Abraham and he made promises to Abraham. They're recorded in a few different places. But in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, for example, God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendant and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. He's promising Abraham descendants, but he's also promising them land. In seminary, I had a professor who would always talk about land, seed, and blessing. That, that's what Abraham was promised. Land, seed, and blessing. Seed being offspring. And we know from Old Testament that the blessings of God came through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Isaac had sons, one of whom was Jacob. And then Jacob had twelve sons. And that became the twelve tribes of Israel. And they wound up because of Sin against one son Joseph by the brothers. They wound up in Egypt. And there were 70 some odd when they eventually all gathered in Egypt. And then over the next 400 years they exploded in growth. Such that the Egyptians, they forgot about Joseph and him saving the country. But the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. But the Israelites kept prospering numerically such that there were probably over a million of them by the time of the exodus. And as we know from the Bible, the end of the time period that God had determined, He raised up Moses, a child who was spared, who should have been killed as a baby according to the decree of the Pharaoh. And he was raised in Pharaoh's home. And as the ripe old age of around 80 began his ministry. And his point was to bring God's people from Egypt to that land long ago promised to Abraham, the promised land. Now, that may seem detached from here, but I'm going to tie into you how relevant this is. Because as God started leading the Israelites under Moses, on multiple occasions, God laid out his requirements to Moses, who then communicated them to the people. One of the most foundational books in the Bible that helps the, under, the New Testament make sense is the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm going to reference that now. But there are many places in Deuteronomy where what I'm about to read to you is stated in one form or another. And it all comes down to God's expectations for His people. So if you have your Bibles, turn over for a moment to Deuteronomy 8, because I'm going to read a lot of Deuteronomy 8. And I'm going to start at Deuteronomy 8, the first verse. 
And you'll hear in my voice probably some emphasis on certain parts and that's intentional. So this is God giving direction to Moses. Moses giving this direction to the people of God. Verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you were to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you as a man, disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Verse 6, therefore... You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and spring, flowing forth in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley. Of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land where you will eat food without scarcity and will, in which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones are ironed and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. That is the backdrop of Joel. God's requirements were relatively simple. Just do what I've asked you to do and I'll take care of everything. I'm bringing you and I'm giving you a land that you'll never go hungry. Wheat, barley, you've got it. Figs, grapes, olive oil, everything, you'll have it in abundance. Pomegranates, whatever you need, you'll have. Just follow me. And you're going to enjoy all of this and say, thank you to me. Don't forget that. And it seems that prior to the devastation that began in Joel chapter 1 verse 4, at least the people of Judah were experiencing the blessings of God in Deuteronomy 8. And what are the requirements of those blessings? It's simple. Just obey God. And remember God. Remember where those blessings came from. So you can imagine, if you've been raised with an understanding that you are God's chosen people, and in fact, you're part of the kingdom as the divided kingdom. There was the northern kingdom. I talked about this a few weeks ago. And the southern kingdom, you're part of the southern kingdom. You read through history, only the southern kingdom had good kings. Occasionally they would repent and turn to the Lord. So you know you're God's people. You know that you're in the land. You're physically there. And you've had abundance. You've had everything. 
Life is easy and good and carefree and you've got full bellies and all is well. You can imagine how bewildered the people were when it all disappeared overnight. Wait, wait a minute, we're God's people. He promises abundance, we're going to starve to death. We got nothing. And here's the key. Now, I believe this frames the book of Joel and it frames most of the Old Testament. God didn't just make promises of blessing. God gave warnings about the consequences of disobedience. And He made it very clear that disobedience of His commands carries a price. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading at verse 11. Judah seems to have forgotten this. Verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Verse 19. It shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. If you read the rest of Deuteronomy at various times, you see Moses saying, here's the blessings if you obey, and here's the curses if you disobey. And part of the curses is that you'll plant and you won't have crops. And the locusts will come and eat them. The reality is that Joel, as is all of the rest of Old Testament history, is pointing out the consequences of forgetting God. It was simple. Moses laid it out. If you obey and keep God's commandments, you'll have more blessings than you can ever imagine. You'll be safe from your enemies. You won't go hungry. Whatever you do will prosper 
if you obey. But if you get proud and if you begin to think that you have what you have because of your own skills and ability, God says, I'll come for you. I'll discipline you. And your life with its pride will not continue. Can I say to you, that's the entire Old Testament. You see, over and over and over, the nation of Israel being disciplined by God. Why were they constantly at war? Why were they constantly being attacked? Why did ultimately they go into captivity? First, the northern kingdom to Assyria. Second, the southern kingdom of Judah with the Babylonians. Why? Because they disregarded the words of Deuteronomy. They wanted the blessings. They enjoyed the blessings. They forgot who provided the blessing. And God won't be mocked. The Old Testament shows generation after generation after generation of people that forgot who they were. I'm convinced that's exactly the context of Joel. When we're setting the stage, what we're realizing from the context of this people at this moment in redemptive history All that was occurring in Joel chapter 1 is God's hand coming down upon a people who forgot Him. It seems clear they had all the blessings, but they turned their back on the one who blessed them. It seems like we find ourselves in Joel 1 with a country that said, Life is good, who needs God. Chapter 1, everything we've just covered is God getting their attention. And it started with the locusts. That completes the stage. Deuteronomy 8.20 Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God The people are on the precipice looking into the cavern. Are they going to step over? Are they doomed? That's the crossroad. That's the framework. And at this point, the sponsor comes home with a commercial and says, come back next time and we'll hear the rest. But but let me assure you, as I transition this, that does set the stage and that prepares us for what comes because what we're going to see is a call to the people of repentance. There would be hope if they repented and I'm looking forward to cover that. But as I have just gone back deep into the Old Testament into thousands of years ago history, let me encourage you, the lessons are not just for then, they're for now. And while we aren't under the old covenant, which was what Moses was laying out, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have warnings for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 5, 
the writer of Hebrews was talking to the new covenant people of God. That's what we are. Verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. As I'm studying this book and as I'm reading this book, and I hope you're seeing it as well, I see parallels and concerns to where we are today. And I want to continually reiterate this because I think it's a constant danger. You read about Judah, once prosperous, then losing everything, and you think, that sounds like America, and it does. And this book, like the rest of the Bible, is a warning to America and every other country in general. But understand, that's not actually the point of this book, because America is not God's chosen people. Neither is England or France or any other country. The warnings of this are not to the big picture out there. They're to God's people now, which is you and me. And as I read this, and I'm trying in my own heart to make sure that I apply this to me, I'm reminded over and over that it's imperative that neither myself nor anyone else over whom I have any influence, it's important that we not misunderstand the great danger we face as God's people. The greatest danger we face as the people of God is not a corrupt society and a bad government. I don't want a bad government and I don't want a corrupt society. Don't mishear me. But if you picture our society and you think of your worst scenario, the worst thing that can happen is we be persecuted because we're believers. And it's only here that we think that's a bad thing. Because Jesus said that's a blessed thing. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. The thing that I fear most for Lakeside has nothing to do with the corruption and decay of all the world around us. It's our own hearts. If we don't hate our sin more, if I don't hate my sin more, if we don't take more seriously the call to be holy as God is holy, if we don't deal with the log in our own eyes before we go around and picking the specks out of everyone else's eyes, I'm going to suggest to you as we get further into this book, the book of Joel is not a call to repentance for all those people out there. It's a call to repentance for us. So let me encourage you. 
pray for our country, vote, do all of those things. I'm not suggesting for a second that those things don't matter, but what I'm saying is if your worst case scenario comes true, it doesn't affect the sovereignty of God one little bit. And it doesn't change God's will for you one little bit. It doesn't jeopardize our salvation. It doesn't jeopardize our happiness. In fact, if we ever finally got to the point where we were persecuted for our faith, we need to take Jesus seriously and say, we'll rejoice and be glad. So let me encourage you. Begin to pray now for the Lord to show you how what follows is calling out to you. I trust not for salvation in the first instance. I pray that you were already saved, but it's calling out to you to repent and remember the Lord to avoid His heavy hand of discipline. Let me close our time this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, the weight of who you are and what you've done is beyond my ability to comprehend. Lord, I feel inadequate, not just in my own understanding, but adequate in teaching such profound truths to your people. And yet, Lord, that's what you've called me to do, so I trust your equipping to do it. Lord, we do mourn for our country. It is heartbreaking to watch the news. It's heartbreaking to see Romans 1 played out in our midst. It breaks our heart to see evil called good and to see good mocked and called evil. But Lord, we're only beginning to walk on a path that saints of old have walked on for thousands of years. Give us perspective, Lord. We do pray that you would work a miracle in the hearts of our fellow citizens, that people would repent and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. We pray that you give us as individuals and as a church opportunities to witness and share the gospel. But Lord, help us not lose sight of what's really important. The issue isn't those people and the corrupt government and all of those things as bad as they are. And one day you will judge the nations. Lord, the issue is you've already shown us so much grace and mercy and love and we so easily forget you. Our eyes are so easily distracted from Jesus Christ. Lord, even while we're enjoying the blessings of being your children, it's easy for us to take them to granted and to forget you. And Lord, we can be so quick to become hypocrites. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us, Lord, to continually repent of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus has paid it all, that we won't endure your wrath for our sins. Christ paid that penalty for us. But, Lord, help us take seriously the warnings of Scripture that you discipline your children as a father does his sons. Help us to be quick to turn away from sin and to turn to righteousness. Lord, we love you. We pray you'll continue to use your word to conform us to the image of our Savior. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.